don't subscribe to the old school way, nor the new school way, only the optimal way. The 80-20 Baseball Experience with Coach Bo. Welcome, everybody. This is Coach Bo with 80-20 Baseball. Hey, go back if you haven't already. Go back and listen to episode 28. We talk about Coach Ed Chef. He's a Hall of Fame coach and, and a lesser known coach outside of the baseball world or for those kind of fringe baseball people. Those coaches and people that have been around the game a long time and really study it, they know Ed Chef and they know how you know amazing his career was. Go back and listen to that. We talk a little bit about what, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot to every coach and there's a lot to every program, but we do talk a little bit about what I believe made Coach Chef so amazing amazing and what I think we can learn from him. That was part one of episode 28. In part two, we talked about how we should coach players and pitchers and hitters and fielders and outfielders and infielders and base runners. We need to coach them with the full understanding and acceptance of their current movement abilities, their current physical abilities and their restraints, their restrictions, their constraints. This will help us adapt and coach according to what they can do right now. But we're not going to get complacent. We're not going to be like, oh, well, it is what it is. We are definitely going to have something going on the side, whether it's with you or with another strength and conditioning coach or somebody who does mobility or some kind of fitness program that can be put together on the side that gets the players that get your players to the level of quality movement that you want to get them to and that they want to get to. So episode 28, part two, we talk about how to make the most of the players' movements right now with the acceptance that they can and can't do certain things physically, especially when they're younger or maybe a growth spurt or they get tight when they get older. And then we also want to have a program on the side simultaneously or before we even start the season to kind of get that quality movement better. And then in part three, we talked about playing first base defensively. We talked about the pre-pitch routine teens of first basements. Go back and listen to that because in this episode, we're going to talk about one of the biggest, if not the biggest difference maker when it comes to playing first base or coaching first basements from a defensive perspective. And what we're going to talk today about in this episode is something that will greatly improve your first basements and how they play and how many throws they catch and how well they do around the bag. And interestingly enough, it's something that is very undercoached. Well, first basemen are typically undercoached or generally they're undercoached in the base community, even at some of the higher levels. So we'll get into that. But before we get to that, let's get to part one of today's episode, episode 29. In part one, I have a recommendation for everybody. This is my number one recommended book. This is my number one recommended book, not just for coaches, but for people in general. This is my number one one recommendation right here. The title of the book is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. I believe Eckhart Tolle has the most understandable, modernized message as he conveys the enormity of the benefits that come from being conscious in that constant flow of being in the present moment. And there's a lot of this wrapped into the baseball mental game. And if you read a lot of mental game books from baseball and you study the mental game of baseball, and if you don't, just trust me on this, being in the moment, pitch to pitch, you know, so what next pitch, let's be present. That is a huge underlying message of all the great mental game coaches in baseball. 
I think it's important that we take this message and use it in all of our lives because then when we get out to the field as coaches or when players get out to the field, it's not something they have to turn on. It's a mindset that they're trying to be in the moment. They're trying to be present at all times with the occasional planning ahead, with the occasional looking ahead to plan out some things and the occasional deconstruction, kind of looking back and and getting some feedback on past decisions. Generally, or what Eckhart Tolle's message is in The Power of Now, which I believe is the number one most influential like contemporary book that you can read is that we should spend 99% of our time in the moment, even in today's world where that's very difficult. You know, I've been studying Zen specifically, and then I found Eckhart Tolle and read The Power of Now later about 10 years ago. But I started studying Zen and consciousness, being in the moment, enlightenment, that kind of like not such a religious thing, but just the mentality of being in the moment, being present. I started studying that almost 20 years ago. I was a big Phil Jackson fan, and Phil Jackson's nickname is the Zen Master. So I started getting into that, and I was digging into that and reading all of Phil Jackson's books. And I came across eventually years later, The Power of Now, and I said, oh, this is the game changer. This is the domino. This is the number the first domino in all of the mental game and all of the mentality of life this is the first domino you flick the first one over and all the others fall with that it kind of reminds me of the one thing by gary keller it's a really well-known book the one thing when i see the book or when i see it on amazon as a recommendation when i'm looking at other books every time i see the book the one thing i think of presence consciousness being in the moment eckhart tolle's message the power of now that is the one thing I truly believe that will change and uh, help and impact 99% of everything else in your life. It is like kind of the one thing. And so if you've ever read Gary Keller's book, what is the one thing you can do that'll take care of all the other things? What's the big thing you can do that's going to take care of all the other things? Now, he doesn't hit on that necessarily in the book as much. It's not really about consciousness and being in the moment. But Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now and and all the videos Eckhart Tolle has out there. So there's guys like Ryan Holiday who are kind of well-known and he's like a younger guy and he's putting out some great stuff. He wrote The Ego is the Enemy and Stillness is the Key. And he wrote Obstacle is the Way. Those are all really good books. In fact, I've read all those books because I love this topic. I just think it's you just can never get enough of it because you're just rewiring so many things that we learned and uh, wrong and, and so many, you know, really trying to just quiet the mind down and be focused and to really see everything clearly and things like that. So I'm always trying to read a little bit more. If anything, it's just to keep the programming going and to keep the rewiring going of my mind. And so Ryan Holiday has a lot of good stuff. You know, I really think that those contemporaries that him and some of these other authors that are writing this stuff now, well, really, it's just repeating what Eckhart Tolle wrote. And then Eckhart Tolle is really repeating a lot of what's already was already kind of out there, you know, for a thousand years, 500 years ago, these authors have written about and people have talked about for years and years. It just happens to be, you know, in our time era. But I believe Eckhart Tolle in our time era understands has has the best breadth and depth and the understanding of being in the moment of presence. And if you read the book, I recommend you read it more than once because he starts using terminology that you got to get a little familiar with. Talks about the pain body. But I do also recommend you just watch videos, listen to some podcasts, audiobook it. He sounds, his voice is a little bit odd. It's a little different, but I'll tell you what, he is just so articulate with his points and so well spoken. And I think his depth and understanding of being conscious, being present, being in the moment is at another level that even some of these awesome writers, these younger people that are that are taking over that topic and that subject aren't anywhere near quite yet. Um, but that's my opinion. I just think it's something that I highly recommend. In fact, it has changed the way I coach. It has made me a much better coach because when you're in the moment and your mind is clear, 
well, before the game starts or before practice starts, or before the season starts, you take some time to plan out what your goals are, what you want to be. And then you get into that moment where you're reading and situations are just become so much more clear when you're present, when you're in the moment. The answers come to you much easier. And also, also you put, you, you're just your best self when you're present, when you're fully present. And I think most of you listening to this already understand the impact and the importance of this and the benefit of this, but it absolutely helps out on the field. I'll tell you what, I was coaching in a championship game, a Southern California championship game about four years ago. And I just remember just being at such ease and peace with the game. And we were playing a heck of a ball club, a top 25 in the country team. I want to say they finished a top 20 or top 15 in the country team. A heck of a team coached by one of my good friends. These guys were stacked with really big players, talented players, and they were absolutely well coached. And so there's a lot of things I could have been thinking about. But you know what? I stayed in the moment. I stayed present. We lost two to one. It was a close game. But the whole game, I just felt like it peace and there wasn't anything that the game didn't speed up it didn't slow down it was just it was just very easy to stay in the moment and it was really one of those pinnacle moments for me as a coach where I just realized hey being in the moment being present makes you the best coach makes you the best person so go read Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now it's my number one rated book number one recommended book of self-development and getting ourselves better now if you want a book that is amazing story. This is not going to be your book. I would actually kind of steer you towards like Unbroken by uh, Laura Hillenbrand. That that story, like that's one you don't want to put down. The Eckhart Tolle one is read a chapter, listen to it again, read it. I like listening to audiobooks, but reading them is good too. Read a chapter, listen to a chapter and read it again and just uh, digest it and apply it into your life. Or if you want a book that's just an awesome story this isn't necessarily going to be your cup of tea that's going to be like a book like unbroken but as far as my number one game-changing book the power of now Eckhart Tolle all right part two now we're going to get into some specifics of baseball out on the field and I'm seeing a lot of you know there's a lot of discussion about major league about the major leagues going to a automated strike zone a robo ump type of strike zone done by technology and computers the optic cameras and things like that Okay, so pitch framing and the value of pitch framing moving forward. Here's my thoughts on this. If the major leagues go to the robo um, if they go to the automated strike zone, then coaches, in my opinion, the coaches of amateur players should start to consider, or, and I'll show you, and I'll talk to you in a second about why I think they should already be considering allocating and moving some of that time that you spend on framing, on framing training, take some of that framing training time and start allocating it to other things things such as blocking, throwing the bases, working the hitter and, and calling a better game. As far as calling a game, I know a lot of coaches call a game, but the catchers have the best view of the game. They have a better view than the coaches from the dugout. And so they can see things. They can kind of sense things. They should have a better feel. So it doesn't hurt to even have them, even if they're not actually calling every pitch. It doesn't hurt to have catchers paying attention to how to work the hitters, what the hitters doing. Are they getting on the plate? Are they off the plate? Are they up in the back? Or what are they doing? What's their mannerisms? What are they seeing from right next to them? And then they can communicate that back with the coach. So they may not be actually calling the game. But my point is take some of their attention away from framing pitches and put it towards things like block and throwing and working the the hitters because that stuff will not go away with automation with technology and I know some of you right now are thinking well the major leagues are going to do that but my high school league is not going to do that (laughs) if if at all in our lifetime and the youth leagues aren't going to be doing that anytime soon right so my point to that is well if you want to coach it for the younger players you can do that but I think if it's something that you know every player that that especially once you get to high school and definitely in college you're looking to take your game professionally you're trying to get drafted you're trying to play professionally it doesn't happen for most players I understand the 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 percentages but 
if pitch framing at the professional level is is no longer important and you can't steal strikes because the technology is going to see right through, it doesn't matter where your glove is and what your glove does, It just, all it cares is where the ball passed through the zone, then it's going to make pitch framing obsolete, the skill of pitch framing obsolete obviously they're going to catchers are going to need to catch the ball and there's going to be you know receiving is still going to be important especially when it comes to receiving with runners on and holding the running game and things like that definitely blocking that's always going to be big but when it comes to like stealing a strike that's going to go by the wayside at the professional level and then if i was a college coach or if i was a high school coach i would actually start to look at this and go okay well do i have a catcher that looks that's looking to go on that's looking to go to the college level or get drafted then maybe i start allocating a little bit more time away from the framing training and i know it hasn't gone into effect yet but that's something that they're going to do Oh, one thing that's super interesting too is that umpires have miraculously gotten so much better at calling strikes and balls. They're not getting fooled by the catchers. The zones aren't these crazy zones that they had in the 80s and even in the 90s when you watch Greg Maddox pitch. Greg Maddox was an awesome pitcher, but he was throwing pitches eight inches off the plate that were getting called strikes. And they're just not doing that in 2019. They weren't. And I don't think moving forward, you know, as we get here, who knows when 2020 season is going to start, if it's going to start or 2021. But um Empires have shown statistically that they're a lot more accurate now. So catchers can't even steal strikes. In 2019, when I looked at the number, if you go to Bloomberg's business, I know it's interesting, Bloomberg business, but they have an umpire auditor, umpire auditor thing, and they and they audit the umpires basically how many calls they get right, how many calls they get wrong. And it's an amazing, I look back over the, since 2012, they kept data. And in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, like zero umpires were 90% or better, like 90% accurate or better maybe like one in 2014 one umpire was like 90 percent accurate or better in 2016 you see a jump you see i think it goes to like two in 2017 or was it 2018 i think 2018 it jumps to eight and in 2019 it jumps to 84 umpires that have a 90 percent accuracy rate or better that's incredible so what that tells you is that framing is not stealing strikes like it used to umpires are and there's a lot of reasons why i think that happened but i'm not going to get into that right now all right the message is the value of pitch framing moving forward is going to shift whether there's robo umps or not you know and here's one of the reasons i think that either way you know even if they don't go to the robo umps i think umpires are, are more accurate because they have this vertical rectangle on the screen of every game live and everybody can see whether they messed up or not they can see where the ball crosses the technology even though it's not to the automate the automated strike zone yet everybody and their mother and grandmother can see whether the umpire got the call right or wrong and for whatever reason there's probably some other things they're doing definitely they've gotten a heck of a lot better at calling balls and strikes based off of where it crosses the zone not what the catcher does or doesn't do with his glove and tries to fool him. So with that said, if you're coaching youth baseball, yeah, definitely you could use some, you know, working on receiving and stuff. I, I wouldn't really spend a lot of time on framing with 6U, 7U, 8U, 9U. Although those umpires definitely are going to be definitely can steal some strikes because obviously there's no technology and those umpires know that nobody's watching live on ESPN or MLB.com with a rectangle, vertical rectangle that's showing them they messed up or not. I do think that there's a purpose to practicing the things that are most important. And I think stealing a strike here is not as important at the youth levels as blocking pitches, as holding the running game, as calling the pitch, setting up, things like that. So while I think it would be definitely better suited to be taught at the lower levels as we move forward with this technology, 
there are so many things at the lower levels that could be improved and make such a bigger difference when it comes to preventing runs for the other team that I think that you got to be careful how you allocate your time and how much time you spend on that framing training. So with that said, one of the main, and I kind of believe artificially contrived complaints I hear from coaches about baseball going to a tech officiated strike zone is that it will take away from the value of pitch framing. And it's a skill that catchers have worked for a long time and worked hard to improve. And then I asked those, I would ask those same coaches this. So we're taking away the catcher getting, you know, credit for stealing a strike or taking away a little bit of the value of a skill for catchers stealing a strike. How about the pitchers that start getting credit every time they actually throw a strike and that it's called a strike? It's unfair that hitters get strikes called on them when they're not strikes, and it's not fair to the pitcher when they throw a strike and it's not called a strike just because it got stolen or you know manipulated and and you know this optical illusion by the catcher's glove or for whatever reason the umpire gets you know fooled into calling it. Who knows? You know, sometimes I think it's the frame job. Sometimes I think it's just they thought it was a strike. It's hard to be an umpire. Those pitches are moving fast. That plate is 17 inches. It's not like this massive, you know, and the baseball small. It's moving quick. I mean, let's give umpires a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. All right. When it comes to that, I do think that uh, if you say, well, it's going to take away this skill. You know what? Take that time and make catchers better at other things. And at the end of the day, yeah, you're going to take away the value of one skill from a catcher, but you're going to now reward pitchers fairly for the strikes they they are working hard to throw. And also when a pit, when a hitter is working on his approach, now that hitter is going to be accurately rewarded for taking a pitch outside of the zone because he's worked hard on his approach, his plan at the plate, and he's not swinging at this. And then the umpire calls it a strike, even though it's outside the zone. So it's a trade-off. Okay. So I think it's important to keep catchers and, and I'm sorry, pitchers and hitters in, in, and what, what's fair to them and what's, what's they work hard on. Also, when we sit there and go, well, I don't want to have this, you know, the strike zone, it's going to take away the framing stuff yeah well it's also if you don't have a strike zone that's consistent then you're also probably taking away some of the skill that hitters work on when it comes to the approach at the plate and definitely on accuracy when pitchers are working really hard using bullets out of their arm to perfect and get better with their accuracy in any case moving forward catching coaches especially at the more advanced levels look to distribute some of the, or most of the time that you currently spend on pitch framing to training up skills such as blocking holding down the running game throwing down to the bases back picking developing strategies for calling a more effective game getting out of off the plate working throws from the outfielder and tags and getting out of this crouch and for bunts and, and maybe a ball that bounces away, working on your feeds to the pitcher covering home plate. Those are things that technology can never take away. And those are things that are going to continue to affect the game and the outcome of the game and make catchers look good and, and really have them stand out. So there's a lot of things to keep working on. And at the end of the day, you'll definitely find things to fill up all that quality catching training that you want to do. Part three, last part. Man, this one's good. This one's good. Playing first base. So reminder from the last episode, we talked about the proper pre-pitch routine or pre-pitch questions a first baseman should quickly ask themselves, such as number one, do I hold the runner on or not? Is this a situation to hold the runner? As you get older, high school, 13, 14 you, definitely college professional. This is just automatic for the most part. It's already it's already been wired in for the older players. But those 7U, 8U, 9U players, they'll likely need to give this some thought, you know, albeit quickly. 
Number two, the first baseman should ask himself, is this, uh, is it a non-runner like double play situation? A non-runner like there's no runner at first, is this a double play situation? And if so, move in a few steps from the default position of like nobody's on position, move in a few steps so you can try to turn that double play. And left or right is going to be based off of the hitter's tendencies, you know, lefty, righty, the hitter's tendencies. But you're going to definitely want to move in a little bit if it's a situation where you're not holding the runner, but it's a double play situation like bases loaded and you're not going home with the ball or runners at first and second. And the next thing you ask yourself, is a hitter a push bunt hitter? I know bunting is is a little bit less and less. It's decreasing the amount of it, but there's definitely push bunters out there, especially lower levels. Push bunt hitter. If it is, move up and move a little to the right. Move up a few steps and then to the right a few steps to cut that push bunt off at the pass and then be able to give yourself a nice feed angle to the pitcher covering the bag. You know, second baseman should not necessarily be covering the bag. I know in the youth level, sometimes the second baseman squirms over there, but if your second baseman's positioned correctly, he shouldn't be over there. It should be your pitcher. All right, the fourth question, pre-pitch question, is the primary play going to be at home plate? And if so, move the first baseman in accordingly. Also remember that first baseman's when there's a play at the plate, should play lay in more than the third baseman's. I know they're both corner infielders, but the first baseman should play in closer to home plate more than the third baseman because the angle of the incoming throw will likely require the catcher to have to move further after receiving the ball to where the spot the tag will be applied on the runner coming in from third base. And the last question, and this is something that comes up a lot. This is something that's probably the most important or useful question over time is where is the second baseman playing? The first baseman should always know where the second baseman is positioned. It's going to dictate whether they might slide over a little more towards the line. And most importantly, and more often, it's going to tell the first baseman when they should probably cover more of that hole or not. And if if the, if the second baseman starts shading over into the 3-4 hole and they start playing, say, a left-hander to pull a little more, which is common, well, then that first baseman shouldn't, they shouldn't have their ranges, their range shouldn't overlap very much, if at all. Ideally, you wouldn't, you would, your range would be just, you know, touching the out, the outskirts of the first baseman's range would be touching the outskirts of the second baseman's range. Second base moving to his left, first baseman moving to his right. Now, a little overlap is okay, but you don't want to have a lot of overlap. You don't want both guys being able to get to a ball real easily in between. So that's something the first baseman's got to ask themselves. All right, now in this episode, it's really important that you listen to this because this is a game changer when it comes to first baseman's and it's very, very undercoached. This is talking about when the first baseman's positioned at the bag, ready to take a throw, ready to get a throw from the an infielder, the pitcher, a catcher. And in the lower levels, sometimes the right fielder, right? This is a major message that should be instilled in all first baseman's from five years old all the way to the major leagues. And in fact, it's not, like I say, coached up very often. The coaching message is this. First basements, stretch to the throw, not to the thrower. In other words, stretch toward where the ball is arriving and avoid the default move of stretching towards the fielder making the throw. Many outs are lost because first basemen stretch too early. They stretch early in the direction of the thrower only to have that throw tail, sail, veer, run, or cut away from their outstretched glove. First baseman must hang tight long enough to see the trajectory of the throw 
And hopefully it'll be accurate and not require the first baseman to get, you know, up on their tippy toes or stretch up or down the foul line. But they must hang tight to see first see the trajectory of the throw. The best throws made many times by elite infielders are both going to be ahead of the runner and on target and thus require no stretch or any kind of movement at all. Just basically just catch the ball. But those should be fairly easy for first baseman. Those should be really easy for first baseman. And if not, the DH slot may be a better fit. We should not coach our first baseman to be elite receivers on perfect throws, but rather elite snaggers of errant throws. And to do this consistently and effectively over and over again, a first baseman should be, needs to be in and needs to hold an athletic ready position until they see the initial path of the throw, at least the initial path, but as much of the throw as they can before they need to commit if they are going to need to stretch. For example, like deep throws from the 5-6 hole will allow the first baseman to hold and track the ball to throw longer and adjust their stretch a little further, while, say, a bunt fielded by the pitcher 30 feet away will require the first baseman to be in a position and be ready for a quick throw. You know, it may be a bang-bang quick throw where the pitcher didn't get off the mound quick and, you know, you see those real quick short throws that's where the stretch is not relevant really at all you'd rather just be in, a, in an athletic position ready to catch a throw because hey we all know sometimes those catch, those pitchers run up grab the ball the grass a little wet or they're used to throwing you know off the mound throwing pitches so they make a throw they drop their elbow or whatever their feet give out a little bit and you got to be ready for those quick throws but the throw from the five six hole or back up the middle second baseman maybe going to his backhand those throws are going to take a little little bit longer to get there so the first baseman needs to hold and see the trajectory, the path of the pitch, is uh, the the throw. Sorry, not the pitch, the throw. And is it tailing? Is it sinking? Is it running? Is it is it going to sail? If I stretch and it sails and it goes up, it stays true and stays up. Then if I stretch, well, that might go over my head. Well, maybe I'll just go up on my tippy toes. So. Either way, a well-timed ready position while gearing up to receive a throw will better allow the first baseman to maximize their catch radius. Catch radius is more important. This is the main message of all of part three here. The catch radius of a first baseman will save more runs and will prevent more runs than the length of the first baseman's stretch, the ability to stretch out and meet the ball, especially those balls that are coming. And when I say, okay, let me let me back up. The catch radius involves stretching or reaching, but it's the radius could be right, left, up. And obviously first basemen's like to scoop balls, but more often than not, throws to the left and to the right of the first baseman and some that sail up are catchable baseballs, but the first baseman has committed to a stretch early and then is in a compromised position because if a first baseman stretches first off they got one foot out in front of the other so it really makes it hard to to pivot and 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 try to work one usually one side is really compromised they can't work back to their glove side or they can't reach over if you're stretching towards a target you are not very good laterally you are going to be very immobile laterally and also if you're stretched out it really takes away from your jumping ability and your ability to go up on your it also shortens it also shortens your height so if you're stretched out it's going to drop you down so your reach up high and how many times have we seen you know the lower levels even in high school and college where the ball goes above the first baseman's head sure some of those are way up there it doesn't really matter nobody's going to get it not even Shaq or Manute Bull 
Do not have your first baseman stretch until they see the throw. They will save more runs with a wide radius than they will that long stretch out towards the thrower, towards the fielder. This is something that I think is super important in what you're going to do when you get out there and work with first basemen. A lot of them are going to be conditioned to, to get ready to stretch. They're worried about stretch. They're worried about stretching out, stretching out, stretching out towards the thrower, towards the thrower. Have them be patient, as patient as they can be. Sometimes it's going to be quick. Have them see the throw and then stretch to where the throw is going to end up. And hopefully your infielders throw it across a diamond and hit the first baseman in the chest. But we all know that's not happening every time. And in some cases, not happening very often. Your first baseman needs to think, catch before stretch. Catch before stretch. Now what I mean, sure, they might stretch left, right, and up. But they're not thinking the the traditional stretch out and do the splits and stretch out and, and try to catch the ball faster. But let's just catch the ball in general that's going to save more runs than that extra split second that you got the ball to your glove. That's going to save more runs by catching the ball up that you you might have missed before to up the line, down the line. You're going to save more runs as a first baseman doing that than you are by getting out of six inches further with your stretch or a foot further with your stretch. All right. Because there's just not that many bang, bang plays that are that come down to six inches in a game. They happen definitely, but there's not as many of those as there are uh, throws that get to the left or get away from a first base that they probably could have reached had they been in a good athletic position. A well-trained, I'm going to finish up with this, a well-trained first baseman should, in my opinion, should be able, well, not should, will be able to switch up their bag foot. A well-trained first baseman, athletic first baseman, will be able to switch up their bag foot on throws. So what happens is if you don't stretch early, then you can use the bag, you can, you might use your, for right-handers, they typically use their right foot on the bag. That's their bag foot. They stretch with their left foot, their left leg. Well, if the throw goes up the line towards the right field line, you're going to maximize more of your range if you can switch over. Over and use your left foot now as your bag foot. If you can slide your left foot over and then reach up, it extends you out. So now you've extended the radius of your reach. Now that's a super well-trained athletic first baseman, but it allows you to switch up your bag feet, you, the the foot that, you know, the, the bag foot that you use based off of where the throw is at. And that's not going to happen very often, but it definitely will happen throughout the course of a season, a half dozen times, like a high school season and a college season, it may happen five, 10 times where you switch the bag foot and it should just be relatively fluid. But if you're in a good ready position, you're not, you're at the bag, first baseman should not have either foot out in front of the other. If you're real athletic, you don't have to have your feet necessarily on the bag. You can have maybe the back of your heels touching the, the bag. You can have, if you're not super athletic, first baseman, maybe you have, maybe your heels are up on the edge of the bag, both of them, but then you, you're, you're kind of, you're low, you're athletic, almost like an infielder, like a, like a third baseman ready for a, for a hot shot or a shortstop ready to move. Uh, that's the kind of ready position that you want to teach your first basements. And then the big thing is to keep them patient until they see where the ball is going and they stretch to the throw, not to the thrower. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a big one out there. I mean, I'll tell you what, Eckhart Tolle, my number one recommendation, The Power of Now, that book, I recommend you just read it two, three times, listen to it on audiobook, check out some of his videos online. It's a little, he's a little, it's a little different how he talks, so I'm just forewarning you now, and some of the terminology he uses, for me at least, when I first got into it, was a little, I didn't quite understand what he was, you know, what it was he was talking about, but as I got to listening and learning and reading more, it made absolute perfect sense, and it was just, I was so I'm sold on him having the best understanding of the power and the the depth 
of how much being present can help our lives. Staying in the moment is so important for players and coaches. So Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now, go get that book. Listen to it, download it. Part two, pitch framing. Eh, Maybe we got to start spending a little more time on those other real important things that aren't going to get taken away maybe by technology. Obviously, the higher up you go, the less I would continue coaching the framing training, the pitch framing training. I would work more on other things, but the lower levels, yeah, you can keep doing some of that. But I also think you don't have as much time to practice when you're younger at youth levels. So, you know, if you have two practices a week, I don't know how much time you can allocate for your catchers to work on framing when blocking and throwing runners out and things like that and getting out of your stance and making a play on on some of these balls, these weekly hit balls out in front of the plate or bunts and things like that. I think there's a lot of other things that might help, but uh, I'm not saying don't work on it when they're young, but uh, I definitely think you should consider as the the game moves forward with that. um, It might be something you start allocating your time a little differently and then playing first base, stretch to the throw, not to the thrower. Get in a ready position. Don't stretch early. All right. Think radius rather than stretching out lengthwise towards the thrower, but radius in terms of how much of a throw, how wild of these throws, how many bad throws can I still catch with my foot on the bag? All right, guys, this is Coach Bo. Man, this has been fun. Email me your thoughts. If you have any questions, CoachBo at 8020baseball.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, 8020 underscore baseball. Love doing this, just trying to help the baseball coaching world out and doing my part, and uh, i got a lot of passion for it, and I think it's a calling, and I hope you guys are enjoying this, and I'll see you on episode 30. Bye for now. This has been the 8020 Baseball Experience. This is a really good team, and so you have to earn everything you have against them and take opportunities when they present themselves. Take it to the field. 